You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everyone had a great week. If you can't tell, I have been sick all week. Thankfully not sick with COVID, just a plain Jane, nice and boring head cold. But as you can tell by my voice, still recovering. So now I've got like the Phoebe Buffet from Friends sexy voice this week. Enjoy. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got the brand spanking hot off the presses Scream, which I watched at one of those 40X theaters. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, 40X is one of those theaters that like moves your chair along with the movie. They also like spray you with water effects and smells, but you can't really smell the smells at the moment because face mask. I've done a handful of them over the last few years just for fun to varying degrees of enjoyment. Sometimes they just like, I swear they're trying to like whip you out of the seats. But Scream was actually kind of super fun because they messed with you a little bit with the jump scares and it made it kind of fun. Also, when somebody got violently stabbed, they sprayed water at you, which was very, it was macabre in a way that I enjoyed. As far as the movie goes, it's fine. I liked it way better than the fourth one. I didn't think the lead chick in this one was a particularly great actress, but I can kind of let that go for the most part because at the end of the day, it's a horror movie. I would like to also state that I figured out who the killers were, and I don't feel like saying that is a spoiler because it's always two killers in Scream. I figured it out in like the first 10 minutes because I'm super good at that shit and I just wanted to brag. I won't spoil it for you, but it wasn't really that hard. Anyway, this week for our main part of the episode, our topic, I believe that is what that's called. Sorry, I'm super, I'm still a little bit loaded on cough syrup, so my brain's a little, uh, this week. So anyway, this week... A man who became the face of what an inventor could be, though he didn't invent as many things as you think he did. Thomas Edison did a lot of shit in his 84 years of life and got into a lot of fights with a lot of people along the way. For the sake of this episode, we're focusing mostly just on the film side of things. Otherwise, this would be a Burns-length podcast episode, and nobody wants to hear me drone on for that long in this weird, hoarse voice. One thing Edison is responsible for is drawing the first sketch that would lead to the creation of the motion picture camera. Technically, his team at one of his labs, led by W.K. Dixon, would actually do the legwork to achieve that. Oh, and inadvertently, Edison also kind of created Hollywood without ever actually going to Hollywood. But I'm getting ahead of myself. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Mm-hmm. 
Thomas Alva Edison was born February 11, 1847 in Milan, Ohio, and grew up in Port Huron, Michigan, the seventh and final child of Samuel Ogden Edison Jr. and Nancy Matthew Elliott. Like last week's figure, George Eastman, Thomas Edison came from very humble beginnings and received very little formal education as a result. He was primarily taught by his mother, a former school teacher, and by reading books he checked out from the library. The young Edison was reportedly quite a curious lad who became fascinated with technology and science at a young age. He was also a bit mischievous. He once sat on a nest of geese eggs and even set fire to a barn to see what would happen. Biographers I came across said he was curious because of this. I say, perhaps, little baby sociopath. When he was 12, Edison began having hearing problems, which was likely due to a bout of scarlet fever. For the rest of his life, Edison would be completely deaf in one ear and hard of hearing in the other. He would say later in life that being unable to hear things around him allowed him to focus on whatever task he had on hand at the time. By the time he was 13, Edison had started working to fund his science habit. His first job was selling candy, vegetables, and newspapers on a train that went from his hometown to Detroit, and that earned the youngster about $50 per week. He then became a telegraph operator at the age of 15 after saving a young child from being hit by a train. He had been fascinated by the telegraph technology, of course, teaching himself Morse code before he even had the job and practiced using the machine for up to 18 hours each day. Life before smartphones, kids. His deafness in this regard gave him an edge as he could really only hear his own machine in a room that housed dozens of them. If you don't know what a telegraph is, it's the little clicky thing that goes beep, 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 beep. So if you imagine a room of that, going to be a little bit focused to know if you're, you know, dotting or dashing. But if you're Edison, all you can hear is your own machine. So it gives him an edge. Once he mastered the telegraph, though, he lost interest in it. He resigned from his job in 1869 to move to New York City to become an inventor. The first few years in the big city, he worked mostly on contract, which in modern speak is freelancing, mostly working on telegraph equipment and improving upon other people's crude designs. By the mid-1870s, though, Edison had enough telegraph patents and money to form his dream factory, which he would begin building in Menlo Park, New Jersey. He and his staff got to work in May 1876. While the telegraph innovations were the bread and butter of the lab in the early days, Edison told friends that he planned to have a small invention every 10 days and a big one roughly every month. By this time, Edison had married a woman named Mary Stilwell, and the two had already had two children, Marion and Thomas Jr. The family home was down the hill from the Menlo Park lab, but despite that close proximity, the three would rarely see their husband and father, save for Sundays. The same month Menlo Park opened at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, Alexander Graham Bell introduced a device that would make the telegraph and Morse code obsolete. That invention was, of course, the telephone. Western Union reached out to Edison. They wanted him to get on this telephone thing stat. An eternally uber-competitive dude, Edison was more than happy to try and beat Bell at his own game. A college-educated dude with financial backing from his soon-to-be father-in-law was as good as any. Edison had a lifelong chip on his shoulder and kind of would 
take the piss out of anybody he came across that had like the big fancy education. And thus, Edison's first rivalry began. Within months, Edison and his team had beaten Bell at his own game, creating a telephone with farther-reaching capabilities, therefore making it possible to commercialize. It was during this time, while experimenting with acoustics for the telephone, that Edison's obsession with sound reached its apex. He wanted to figure out how to record the sound that was being amplified out of the speakers of the phone and figured that using a needle that would scratch onto a surface, he started with paper then ended up using tinfoil, would do the trick. Soon after a series of experiments, he would have a crude model of what would become known as the phonograph. His machinist at the time, John Crusey, would build the models for them to test. Edison was not planning to change the world with this invention. He was mostly just doing it for fun and to see if they could do it. Little did they know, they were about to immortalize the sounds of people's voices and many, many, many other things. When they finished the machine, every man on duty gathered round it, watching as Edison recited Mary Had a Little Lamb into the diaphragm of the machine, then waited on bated breath as they moved the needle back to the beginning of the recording. To their surprise and delight, Edison's voice came back at them, filling up the airwaves around them. Scientific American would be the first to publicize Edison's feat after a demonstration in their offices in December 1877. Soon after, Edison was a full-blown public figure. People loved his persona and the fact that he was a man who had come from humble beginnings to make something of himself. He was literally living the American dream. One journalist would dub him the Wizard of Menlo Park. With people now knocking down the door of said Menlo Park, Edison bristled at the newfound celebrity. He was an inventor, not a showman. This increase in fame wore especially heavy on his wife Mary. She, like her husband, had come from humble beginnings, and instead of being kind of like stoked on her husband's success and all of this, you know, crazy hubbub around like this invention they'd done, she actually found it very nerve-wracking. She began claiming to be ill much of the time, and her absence from the Menlo Park hubbub was noted by many in the press. Remember, self-care did not really exist back then. Edison went gallivanting around, went to hide from the press to and studied an eclipse. He left his wife and family at home and she got sick again. But then eventually he slowly over a course of three and a half weeks, meandered back to New Jersey. Back in the lab, Edison sought to come up with a marketable plan for his phonograph. Investors Thought the machine would be great for business, but Edison would have to find a more durable surface to record than tinfoil. It would actually end up being rival Alexander Graham Bell, who would eventually discover a method using wax. It was not Edison, because he eventually lost interest in what investors wanted him to make, and his eyes were already straying to a new project. One that would also change the world. In fact, unless you're listening to this out in a rural field somewhere, you're likely no further than about six feet from one or more right now. I am currently within six feet of three of them. Any guesses? Well, on September 14th, 1878, Edison revealed his next big thing. Indoor electrical lighting. 
Now, outdoor electrical lighting had been around for about 70 years by this point in the form of what's known as arc lights, which used two carbon rods and a current, but the light was so blinding it was impractical for indoor use. By the late summer of 1879, nearly a year after a promise Edison had made in the papers to light up Manhattan with this indoor electrical light, that had yet to happen. The press, who up until this point had been big fans, began to turn on him, believing it to be impossible to create an electrical light bulb at all. Some of Edison's investors, including J.P. Morgan, were getting a little antsy. Edison would sweet-talk them with tours of the Menlo Park facility to show progress. He just needed to buy some time. On October 22nd, 1879, after trials and trials and trials and errors and errors and errors, a bulb containing carbonized cotton thread was left to burn in the Menlo Park lab. It did so for nearly 13 and a half hours. Edison employee Francis Upton, who was one of the big inventors of the light bulb, it wasn't all Edison, was amazed when he returned to the lab and found it still illuminated. The light bulb was unveiled on New Year's Eve, 1879. Hundreds of people descended upon the laboratory to see Edison's latest breakthrough. When they arrived, 20 lampposts, all fitted with electrical lights, illuminated the way from the train depot to Edison's lab, which was a glow in the light of he and his team's latest breakthrough. Edison and his team had literally conquered darkness. Starting in February 1881, Edison began spending more time in New York. He had set up a headquarters for what he called the Edison Electric Light Company. There, they began troubleshooting and eventually tearing up the streets of New York to create an electrical grid for a section of Lower Manhattan. On September 4th of that same year, 1881, Edison successfully illuminated one square mile of New York City. Now, all of this, this whole time period of Edison's life, it's super duper interesting, but we're going to have to just speed right by it because it doesn't have anything directly to do with Edison's contributions to the motion picture. How Edison eventually was one of the people who electrified the entire nation and the feuds he had with people like Nikola Tesla, George Westinghouse, and several others is actually a super interesting story. There's even a movie about it called The Current War, but we just don't have time to talk about it today. Definitely want to do that for like a history episode down the line, though. But if you're super interested, if this is kind of your thing, there are links in the bio of stuff of sources that I found if you'd like to learn more about it in the meantime. So he's done the thing. He's done the Manhattan thing. In July 1884, nearly three years later, Edison received news that his wife, Mary, had taken gravely ill. On August 9th, at the age of just 29, Mary Edison died of what was believed to be a morphine overdose. Whether accidental or not, it's unknown. Thomas Edison barely made it in time to say goodbye to his wife. With the Menlo Park men now scattered to the winds, many now managing elements of the electrical light business that had made Edison a millionaire, the 37-year-old widower ran into an old friend, Ezra Gilliland. The two began lightly collaborating, and this rekindled friendship provided Edison with the companionship he'd found his life lacking. Through Gilliland, he would meet his second wife, Mina Miller. She was 19, he was 38. 
Three more children would soon join the Edison family. Gilland and Edison's friendship was not a long one, as they would have a falling out in the late 1880s. Revitalized at last, Edison got back to tinkering. In December 1887, Edison opened his quote-unquote perfect workshop in Orange, New Jersey. It was 10 times bigger than his Menlo Park one. Edison would be forced out of the electricity game when he started using AC current to try and prove that Westinghouse's electrical methods were dangerous. He did that by electrocuting animals. It didn't work, this animal murder plot and it was it actually backfired so badly i'm not laughing because the animals died edison was forced out of the electrical side of his business the investors kicked him out of his own invention another company was founded without him by his investors and that company is still around today i'm sure you know it well it was general electric While publicly he said he didn't care, privately he was reportedly quite heartbroken. And Edison vowed that he would make something so great that people would forget that he ever had anything to do with electricity. Late 1892, early 1893, Edison's workmen in West Orange built what they would soon call the Black Mariah because it looked like a police wagon. The black tar-covered structure with a retractable roof was built on top of a Lazy Susan-type apparatus that would allow the building to move in step with the sun. This building would house Edison employees who would capture moving images from the company's latest invention. Six years prior, Edison had met with Edward Mybridge, whom, as we all know because I told you two weeks ago, was the guy whom did all the photographs with the horses and etc. to study motion. Edison had attended one of Mybridge's lectures, which included a presentation using Mybridge's zoopraxiscope. They talked about a collaboration between Mybridge's zoopraxiscope and Edison's phonograph, which he'd recently gone back to because Alexander Graham Bell had improved upon it. But nothing came from the two ever collaborating because Edison decided to just do it himself. He called his invention the kinetograph, an optical recording device for which he had drawn a mock-up for for a patent application. He promised that this invention would do for the eye what the phonograph did for the ears. For the sake of fairness, Edison was not the first person to successfully create a motion picture camera. On January 10th, 1888, the French artist and inventor Louis Le Prince registered the first British patent for a motion picture camera. He recorded the earliest known motion picture on October 14th, 1888. The film, which was later known as the Round Hay Garden Scene, which is on YouTube if you're curious, lasted about 1.6 seconds and briefly depicted Le Prince's family in motion. He filmed several other subjects before he mysteriously vanished on September 16, 1890, en route to Paris to show off his invention. 
So here's the super basic techie techie stuff for what you need for a camera to do in order to end up with moving pictures. Firstly, you need some flexi film. Check. Thank you, George Eastman. But you also need a camera that can take a succession of images fast enough to mimic what our eyes and brain are doing all day, every day until we go to sleep. Your eyeballs are one of the best cameras in the world. Right now, as you're listening to this or going through about your day, your eyes are taking hundreds and thousands of images that are getting sent to the back of your brain where the back of your brain part that's in charge of vision makes everything happening around you look like a continuous motion. Your eyes are not like video cameras. They're like little just point and click cameras. But your brain makes it look like it's one smooth motion. In order for a camera to mimic that process, so your eyes take in the same images and make one smooth moving image, it would have to be able to move crazy fast, about 12 to 30 pictures per second minimum, to give the illusion of a singular solid motion. This is what is known as persistence of vision. So now we're going to pivot to W.K. Dixon for a little bit. He is an unsung hero of cinema whose contributions were really only brought to light in the 1960s, 30 years after his death. Dixon was a sometimes photographer who had been working for Edison since he was about 23 years old, though he had first tried to get employment with Edison when he was just 19. Once Edison filed the patent for the earliest version of the motion picture camera, in June 1889, Edison officially assigned W.K. Dixon and a team to make it a reality. Edison, of course, would take full credit for this invention. At first, Dixon and his assistant tried to combine audio and visual together at the same time, but this was quickly abandoned because the technology just didn't really exist at the time, is the shorthand version without going crazy technical. Further inspiration for the kinetograph came from Etienne Jules Marais, whose studies in animal photography and innovations with cameras eventually allowed him to shoot 12 frame, let's call them baby movies of birds to study their movement. He was able to start doing that when flexible film became possible. Murray had turned a gun, a rifle, into a camera. I believe this is where the term shooting a film came from, but don't quote me on that. And when Edison met with Murray while in Paris for an exposition, when he saw the camera gun, he realized what they needed to do with the kinetograph. So we know from last week that we had film that was capable to do this, which also happened in part due to work between Eastman and the Edison Company, which I did forget to mention last week. Oops. The flexible stock was completely done by Eastman, but transitioning it into motion picture stock was a collab between the two. What that mostly was, was needing to figure out the sprocket holes, which are the little holes on the sides of the film, and how those could be used to advance and stop the film in front of the lens. Initially, they started using 19 millimeter film, which was fed horizontally into the camera, shooting circular images. But as Dixon continued working on the camera and after Edison saw Marais, eventually they settled on 35 millimeter film with a 1.33 to 1 picture ratio, a standard format which is still in use to this day in cinema when they use film at all. When Edison and Eastman actually got together to achieve this is a matter of debate because they kind of played up the event in the press and it was likely much later than anything they said. It was also very inconsistent when they said this happened, but it did happen. So we do know what happened. 
The kinetograph was especially made to shoot with the sprocketed film developed by Eastman and no other. The film in the camera was allowed to stop a cell on the film long enough so each frame could be fully exposed and then advanced it quickly in about 1 460th of a second in the early days to the next frame. The sprocket wheel that engaged the strip was driven by what is called an escapement disc mechanism, and this was the first practical system for the high-speed stop-and-go film movement that would become the foundation for the next hundred or so years of cinematography. Basically, until digital, that was the standard. When it came to the kinetoscope, which would become the viewing device for the soon-to-be-created films, that worked by taking a loop of the horizontal film and ran it around a series of spindles. The film, with a single row of sprockets, was then fed through the machine by an electrically powered sprocket wheel to be moved beneath a magnifying lens. An electrical lamp would shine beneath the film and shoot the images onto the lens, and then a viewer could look in through a peephole atop the cabinet and see the moving image. A rapidly spinning shutter quote, permitted a flash of light so brief that each frame appeared to be frozen. This rapid series of apparently still frames appeared as a moving image. Again, this is persistence of vision. W.K. Dixon also became, in the most basic terms of the phrase, the first film director. He would be the one working in the Black Mariah, filming subjects like violinists playing while people danced, Annie Oakley shooting glass targets, various vaudeville acts performing, and circus acts. He would also shoot the first on-screen kiss. All of that happened in Edison's Black Mariah. Edison had nothing to do with any of it. By this time, Edison had introduced phonograph parlors for people to come and listen to phonographs using headphones that kind of look like modern-day stethoscopes. Edison intended to do the same thing with the catalog of films that were being created by Dixon. That's what the kinetoscope was for. The kinetoscope was officially unveiled in May 1891 to a meeting of the National Federation of Women's Club hosted by Edison's new wife. The 35mm camera was more or less finalized by the fall of 1892. The completed version of the 35mm kinetoscope was unveiled at the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences on May 9, 1893. The first commercially exhibited motion pictures in the United States were from Edison, using the kinetoscope, and premiered at a kinetoscope parlor in New York City on April 14, 1894. The public were entranced. But not for long. Audiences soon tired of the peep show novelty. Dixon believed this was due to people having to move from one machine to another to see the other movies, which was distracting. Dixon and others on the team tried to make Edison start thinking of developing a projection device, but Edison was reluctant to do so. He didn't think he could sell as many projectors as he could sell those super inconvenient boxes, and if he couldn't sell a ton of super convenient boxes and only like 10 projectors, well, that would shit on his business. Auguste and Louis Lumiere, our subjects for next week, would be among the first people to project films, and their first exhibition was in December 1895, which is a story for next week, of course, and other inventors soon followed in suit when that was a huge, huge hit. The first projected films in the U.S. were done by Thomas Armit with his invention, The Fantascope, in Atlanta, Georgia. Projection quickly became the desired product for motion picture consumers. And Edison had diddly squat. 
So his sales agents approached Armit and convinced him to sell the patent for the Fantascope to the Edison Company. They pressured him into doing so, as it was better to dance with the devil than to go to battle with him. Thomas Armit's Fantascope would be renamed as the Edison Vitascope and was marketed in the press as Edison's Next Great Invention. Edison's Next Great Invention premiered on April 23, 1896 in New York City. The American motion picture industry had officially arrived. Now, Edison was doing hella other stuff at this time, and frankly, for the rest of his life, he was involved in at least no less than a dozen different fields. He was basically Apple, Microsoft, Procter & Gamble, Ford, and Samsung, all rolled into one. His name was attached to all manner of inventions coming out of his company, which is why everyone thinks he invented freaking everything. But in reality, he was just good at marketing and the brand awareness of his name in a way that wasn't really around back then. So FYI, for the rest of this episode, and for the sake of all of our sanity, we're all about what he did in regards to film. But know that this dude was everywhere and was a humongous celebrity. W.K. Dixon left Edison in 1895 for another motion picture company as they were springing up like crazy at this time. He would work in motion pictures for the rest of his life until his sudden death in 1935. All of the films coming out of Edison Studios, as it was called it by this time, before and after W.K. Dixon left, were called actualities, which were short films that showed everyday activities and people up to just daily routines. Essentially, they were very primitive documentaries. In the early 1900s, over in France and Britain, however, they had begun making narrative films, which were quickly becoming more popular overseas than Edison's films. To stay Competitive, Edison Studios transitioned to scripted, and by 1904, 85% of all Edison films were narrative. Now, we all know that anytime anybody has a good idea, other people will try to copy it or approve upon it for their own gains. This is what happened with the motion picture industry. Other inventors were coming up with their own equipment, too, which, coupled with Edison's machines, got into the hands of the world's earliest filmmakers who began developing the craft that we know as the movie business. Theaters sprang up around the country, too, to exhibit said films. Edison whom had the U.S. patent on the motion picture camera and the motion picture projector, turned into a first-class grade A dick. So much so that his actions would actually eventually lead to the foundation of Hollywood. Edison would pick a fight, and when he did, he fought like a junkyard dog with anybody who tried to quote-unquote steal from him, and he did so hardcore when it came to people trying to use his shit to make movies. Starting in 1902, Edison had been notifying distributors and exhibitors of films that if they did not use Edison machines and films exclusively, they would be subject to litigation for supporting filmmaking that infringed on his patents. Edison flexed his power further by founding the MPPC, or Motion Pictures Patent Company, in December 1908, which had been preceded by the Edison licensing system, which had been in effect in 1907-1908. The Edison Manufacturing Company's patent lawsuits against each of its domestic competitors crippled the growth of the U.S. film industry, reducing production for a while mainly to two companies, Edison 
and Biograph. Biograph used a different camera design, so they were in the clear. This left Edison's other rivals with little choice but to import French and British films for exhibition and or distribution. Since we were in the silent era, language was no barrier. Worn out, literally and figuratively and financially by the lawsuits, Edison's competitors, which at this time included SNA, Pathé Ferré, Selig, and Vitagraph, approached him in 1907 to negotiate a licensing agreement. Notably absent from that list was Biograph, which Edison had hoped to squeeze out of the market. No further applicants could become licensees. The purpose of the licensing agreement, according to an Edison lawyer, was to quote, preserve the business of present manufacturers and not to throw the field open to all competitors. These companies were the ones that were part of the MPPC. Well, Biograph wasn't going to take that standing down, and they retaliated from being frozen out of the trust agreement by purchasing the patent to the Latham film loop, which was a key feature of virtually all motion pictures then in use. Edison sued to gain control of the patent in 1907 because he owned all the motion picture camera patents, but that did not go his way. With no choice but to cooperate, Edison began negotiating with Biograph in May 1908 and reorganized the Edison licensing system. The resulting trust pulled 16 motion picture patents. Ten of them were not as important, but three pertain to films, which is George Eastman Kodak, who was also a part of the trust, the cameras, and the Latham Loop, and three were for projectors. The MPBC did away with the sale of films to distributors and exhibitors and replaced it with rentals, which allowed quality control over prints that were shown in theaters that had formerly been exhibited long past their prime. They're all jumpy and scratchy and they looked bad. The trust also established a single rental rate for all licensed films, removing price as a factor for the exhibitor when it came to choosing films to show, which then encouraged the upgrading of production values and storytelling because now they couldn't just sell cheap crap to the smaller theaters. So yeah, the MPPC did some good things for regulating the industry. However, the MPPC also established a monopoly on all aspects of filmmaking. Eastman Kodak agreed to sell stock only to other members of the MPPC or anyone who agreed and paid a membership fee to use their stuff. Likewise, the trust control of patents on motion picture cameras ensured that only MPPC studios were able to shoot, and the projector patents allowed the trust to make licensing agreements with distributors and theaters, and thus determined who screened their films and where. The patents owned by the MPPC further allowed them to use federal law enforcement officials to enforce their licensing agreements and to prevent unauthorized use of their cameras, films, projectors, etc. In some cases... If the police were too busy doing, you know, like other shit, the MPPC made use of hired muscle and mob ties to violently disrupt productions that were not licensed by the trust. Many independent filmmakers, whom were a big enough piece of the pie, 25 to 35% of the market, depending on the source at this time, responded to the creation of the MPPC by moving their operations to Hollywood, whose distance from Edison's home base of New Jersey made it more difficult for the MPPC to enforce its patents. Plus, the mob ties and muscles at the MPPC's disposal didn't exist 
in that region yet. Also, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which was headquartered in San Francisco and whose jurisdiction was included Los Angeles, was averse to enforcing patent claims. Southern California, more specifically Hollywood, other than, you know, it was very far away geographically, was also chosen because of its weather, which I lived here for 11 years. It's fantastic except for when it's really, really hot, and its proximity to other types of climates and topography, which meant that early filmmakers could shoot scenes set in deserts, jungles, and big mountains without leaving the county. Hollywood had one other advantage. If a non-licensed studio was sued, it was only 100 miles to Mexico, where the trust's patents were not in effect, and thus equipment could not be taken. Location, 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 you guys. This became the first nail in the MPPC's coffin. This second came in 1911 when Eastman Kodak modified its exclusive contract with the MPPC to allow Kodak to sell film stock to unlicensed independent studios. The number of theaters exhibiting independent films grew by 33% within 12 months. It's not like they could do anything about it. He was the only dude who had film. The third was the MPPC's overestimation of the efficiency of controlling the motion picture industry through patent laws and the exclusion of independent filmmakers from licensing agreements. The process of using detectives to investigate patent infringements was incredibly slow work when they were all over on the East Coast and the growth of studios and theaters was happening too fast for everybody to get in trouble or really anybody to get in trouble. The fourth was the rise of the feature film, which began in 1912 to 1913 thanks to independent producers and foreign films. The MPPC had been very reluctant to make the changes necessary to their patents and machines to distribute and exhibit longer films. Edison, Biograph, Essany, and Vitagraph did not release their first feature films until 1914, after hundreds of feature films had already been released by independents in the U.S. alone. Patent royalties to the MPPC ended in September 1913 with the expiration of the last of the patents filed in the mid-1890s. So, the MPPC lost the ability to control the American film industry through the patent licensing and now had to rely instead on its subsidiary, the General Film Company, which was formed in 1910, to instead monopolize film distribution in the U.S., but the outbreak of World War I in 1914 cut off most of the European film market to the United States, which played a huge part of the revenue and profit for MPPC members than for independent filmmakers and theaters, which were at that time concentrated on westerns, and those were produced primarily for the U.S. market. The end of the MPPC came with a federal court decision in the U.S. versus the MPPC, and that decision came down on October 1st, 1915, and they ruled that the MPPC's acts went, quote, far beyond what was necessary to protect the use of patents or the monopoly which went with them, end quote and therefore created an illegal restraint of trade under the Sherman Antitrust Act. A court dismissed the MPPC's appeal and officially terminated the company in 1918. Edison sold the film business and its New York location Bronx Studios on March 30th, 1918. 
1926, Thomas Alva Edison retired from his company at the age of 79. He passed the company on to his oldest son with Mina, Charles. In his twilight years, Edison was almost completely deaf and was suffering from kidney disease and digestive issues. Because of this, he stopped eating and then only consumed about three cigars and a pint of milk every three hours. His reasoning for this interesting diet? He came into the world drinking milk and he surmised that that was how he was going to leave it. As his health failed, reporters migrated to West Orange, waiting for news on the ailing inventor. They were there for weeks, until October 18th, 1931, when the news came down that Thomas Edison was no more. Condolences came from every source imaginable, from worldwide dignitaries to school children. For two days, Edison's body lied in state in his West Orange laboratory. 50,000 people would visit and pay their respects. On the third day, President Herbert Hoover asked all Americans listening to the radio at that time to turn off their lights in unison to remind them of what Edison had given them all. Thomas Edison, whether he created them or not, was in some way responsible for bringing so many technological advances to domestic consumption. He gave us light, he gave us sound, and most importantly in the respects for this podcast, he, in a way, gave us one of the first motion picture cameras. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. Your girl needs some new equipment. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the brothers whom turned an invention into an art form to be enjoyed in the dark with hundreds of your closest stranger friends, the Lumiere brothers. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs) 